Hello, I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this is KGOU's How Curious, the series dedicated to stories from around Oklahoma. This one starts in Oklahoma, but it's going to take us over 5,000 miles away to the former Soviet Union. I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee. You probably recognize this. It's Merle Haggard. He's one of country music's most popular performers. So to Reba McIntyre, Willie Nelson, Roy Orbison, Tammy Wynette, and Dwight Yoakam. Yet while these artists are very well known, the man who's represented them all at some point in their careers, plus many others besides, is not. But Jim Halsey is, according to the Encyclopedia of Country Music, one of the field's most influential business figures. I can't describe Jim's career in a brief nutshell because it's just too big a nut. Not least because he started working in his late teens and is now 92 and still professionally active. This is as succinct as I can make it. He's an all-round music impresario, a talent manager, booking agent, creator of events, and much more. And he's done all of this from his base in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's an exhibition dedicated to his work at the historical center of the nearby city of Wagoner. It's full of memorabilia across the decades, but since covering the whole of Jim's professional life would take hours, I'm here for just one part of it. Jim's colleague, Mark Furness, took me to see the area of the exhibit that I'm interested in. And by the way, Mark is himself an Oklahoma Blues Hall of Fame guitarist and songwriter. Mark pointed out one particular photo to me. These are Russian Cossacks, and all four of these guys are over 100 years old. No! And there's Jim, and of course Roy, right there in the middle. Roy is country music legend Roy Clark. They look incredibly well. For being over 100 years old. For being over 100 years old, you would say more like around 75. That's Jim Halsey himself. He was on the other side of the museum. You asked them what their secret was? What did they say? Drink vodka every day, keep your mouth shut. Drink vodka every day and keep your mouth shut. Which makes sense. It does make sense. The photo was taken in Soviet-era Moscow during one of the country music tours of the former USSR that Jim put together in the 1970s and 80s. It was the era of the Cold War, though things were thawing somewhat. The thought of taking country music to the USSR sounded to me like a hugely ambitious venture fraught with challenges. But over and again, Jim has proved to be one of those people who can just get things done. He said the idea for it began when he was with Roy Clark at the Frontier Hotel in Las Vegas, where Roy was playing a series of shows. During some downtime, the pair were watching the news. And there was a group of Soviet dignitaries got off the plane in Seattle. And they were being interviewed. They said, you're enjoying your trip to America. Is there any place that you're not going that you'd hope to go? And the leader of the group said, well, yes, we would have loved to have gone to Las Vegas, but we couldn't get the arrangements. So Roy Clark and I said at the same time, let's invite him to Las Vegas and see our show. Imagine the red tape, but Jim swiftly cut through it. He contacted the US State Department and plans were put in place. Two days later, the Soviet delegation arrived in Vegas. The costs of their trip were covered by Howard Hughes, owner of the Frontier Hotel, and included some surprise gifts. The Howard Hughes people gave each one that came there a sack of 25 cent pieces to go to the slot machines. Well, their dignitaries were there to meet them and the mayor and all that stuff. All of a sudden, they got that sack of quarters and they dispersed over that casino. And I thought, oh my gosh, we'll never see them again. 
They had the best time. They came to the show that night. When it was over, and Roy invited him back to his dressing room. So we're back there, and Roy's got his guitar out, and they're playing, and everybody's singing and having a good time. And, and when it's over, the head of the Russian delegation said, Roy, we'd like to invite you to come and perform in the Soviet Union. The only thing you can do, you were so honored, is say yes. We started our negotiations with the uh, Russians the next year, 1974. Arrangements certainly weren't straightforward. Russian officials made numerous trips to ensure that the envisaged concerts would go smoothly. They'd cut out a lot of songs that referred to maybe Jesus or God, freedom and you know, all the things that they didn't want to hear. So we finally got all that passed. Then we went in January of 76. In the meantime, we're doing all these interviews with press and saying, well, Roy, what are you going to do? And Roy said, I'm just going to go over and do my best to entertain. Well, I found in my many years on the road... This is an archive recording of Roy Clark. ...that people are just people all over the world. Only governments are different. And I feel in my heart that if people know each other better, then we can't be a threat to each other. The whole thing was part of the U.S. State Department's cultural exchange program. Joining Roy and Jim on the tour were the Oak Ridge Boys. After a two-day journey, they arrived at Moscow's airport. It's 28 degrees below zero. You couldn't even take pictures. Your cameras froze up. They had to walk hundreds of feet from the plane to the terminal. And lined on either side of us. It must have been like three or 400 soldiers with Kalashnikov machine guns. All of them had their finger on the trigger. And Roy looked over to me and he said, Halsey, what have you gotten us into? The first concert had been due to take place in Moscow the following evening. However, at the last minute, the location had been switched to Riga in Latvia, and they'd have to travel by train for a further 12 hours. By that time, it must be 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. There really were no compartments. They had a compartment for Roy and I and the band and that. The rest of it is just like a cattle car. It didn't even have benches or anything. And they're drinking vodka and eating salamis and below. Smell like garlic in there. One of those Russians had a guitar and started singing, I'm so lonesome I could cry. An old Hank Williams song. Our guys got their guitars out. It was a whole night of singing because they knew a lot of those old Hank Williams, Ernest Tubb songs. By the time we got to Riga in Latvia, we were right at home. Their first concert took place that same evening. Everybody was just beat. But you know how it gets when you get playing music. Down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans. Went back up in the woods among the evergreens. Stood a log cabin, made her earth and wood. Where lived a country boy named Johnny Good. He never, never learned to read or write so well, but he could play a guitar like a ring of a bell. Johnny goes out. That audience was as cold inside as out. They were sitting there with their arms folded and thinking, okay, you Americans that are planning on bombing us any minute, entertain us. Well, that's what Roy did. Halfway through the first song, 
you could just see and feel that whole audience relaxing into their chairs, and it's one of the most magical moments of my life. Back at the Wagoner exhibit, Mark showed me a huge photograph taken during the encore of that very first concert. Evidently, the photographer was at the back of the stage, behind Roy, and pointing the lens towards the audience. The place is packed, the crowd look rapturous, and Roy's arms are flung wide open to acknowledge the applause. You can see a copy of this picture on our webpage. Just search for KGOU and How Curious. Spice Eba. To see that there and to watch it actually transform people from a, uh, an atmosphere of distrust, even as far as hate, into a loving, peaceful, well, the world does have some hope. He did that for uh, 25 days. And it wasn't just the audience present who got to hear Roy and the Oak Ridge Boys. The concert was also broadcast live on TV. And I said, well, is this more than just uh, Riga? Oh, this is going over our whole 17 uh, countries. And I said, how many people are watching? Oh, a couple hundred million. That was a large audience. We had that every night. What did they do about the language difference? They had an interpreter there. This next song is about a man falling in love with a girl and all that. Didn't matter, they were listening to the melody and, and seeing the instrument play. And I learned a good lesson. None of their crew spoke English and none of ours spoke Russian. We finally got two of all of it with sign language and them knowing the equipment and all of that stuff. And I made up my mind that I was never gonna do another show outside the United States with my contracting not calling for a bilingual crew. Years later, when I was doing the Montreux Jazz Festival. Montreux in Switzerland. Fred Woods, who was my tech guy, and he came running up to me, said, Jim, we got a real problem. None of the stage or sound crews speak English. I said, pull the contract out. It says right here, bilingual crew furnished. He said, well, they're bilingual. They speak French and German. <laughs> In all, that first Soviet tour was deemed a huge success. For this, Jim credits the performers involved, the Oak Ridge Boys and Roy Clark. He really was sensational. And then also, he just happened to be a big, friendly guy with a big smile. And when he shook your hand or hugged you or something, it was sincere. It's the same way with the Oak Ridge Boys. Despite the Soviet mandates, the concerts did often end with a gospel number. I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. We closed the show with, have a little talk with Jesus, which we thought they would stop immediately. But that didn't happen. And they particularly loved the Oak Ridge Boys because of the vocal harmony. The Russians and those Eastern Europeans love vocals, love harmony of quartets and that. And a little talk with Jesus makes it right. During that first tour, 20 concerts were played in 20 days, and all of them were televised. It gave them uh, trust and respect for who we were and what we were trying to do. So it changed the attitudes toward Americans. Now, we're not talking about the 3,000 people that are in the audience. We're talking about a couple of hundred million people that are watching on TV. Once completed, the tour's positive impact was also noted back here in the States. We were given, we, I'd say Roy Clark and the Oak Ridge Boys, were given credit for 
softening the atmosphere between the Soviets and the Americans. When we got home, we got a letter from every single senator in the United States that indicated what a good job that they had done. Thanks to the enthusiastic reception of that first tour, Jim was able to organize several more before the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Preparing to defend against a second gigantic attack, even as they're already under assault by Russia. Ukrainian units held large-scale drills to prepare for bigger battles to come. I recorded the material for this episode in spring 2023, over a year on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There was a sad irony to hearing Jim talk about the role music had played in softening Cold War relations as this actual war continues. When I asked him to share his thoughts regarding the current situation, he preferred not to speak directly about it, but instead said this. I'm a person of universal feelings and philosophies. There are a lot of things that go on that I don't like everywhere, and a lot of things that I do. Eventually, it boils down to the human being. I like what human beings do when they are operating from their highest point. And that's what music and art does the same thing. How Curious is a production of KGOU Public Radio. It's produced by me, Rachel Hopkin, the editor is Logan Layden, and David Gray composed our theme music. In addition to the contributors featured in this episode, I'd like to thank Dwayne Allen, Betsy Brumley, Larry O'Dell, and Pixabay Sound Effects. And please, if you have an Oklahoma-related question or subject that you'd like How Curious to cover, email us at curious at kgou.org. Two men of color vanished after last being seen in the same deputy's patrol car. I knew something was wrong. My mother knows. It's the strangest case, the most unsettling case. Listen to The Last Ride podcast, part of the NPR Network.